Dr. John Whitcomb spent much of his life teaching the Old Testament. It was really quite remarkable then that in his later years, he devoted much of his energy to preparing messages on the New Testament book of Acts. And we're so glad he did, because now we have those recordings to benefit from and to share with you here on Encounter God's Truth. Hello, friends. I'm your host, Wayne Shepherd. Dr. Wickham felt comfortable undertaking this study of the book of Acts because, like so much of the Old Testament, it presents a historical narrative, the only inspired history book of the early church. Dr. Whitcomb even co-authored a commentary on the book of Acts with Pastor George Zeller of Middletown Bible Church in Middletown, Connecticut, where these messages in this ongoing series called Acts, Witness of the Early Church, were recorded live throughout six years of the Independent Fundamental Bible Conference. You can access that free commentary among the resources we provide at whitcombministries.org. And to hear all the programs in this series, go to sermonaudio.com slash Whitcomb, and you'll find the messages from our first four volumes, as well as this year's current fifth volume. We appreciate our friends there in Middletown and their assistance in bringing this rich teaching to you. It's my joy to lead you back to the auditorium there now as we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Here's Dr. John Whitcomb. God is heavily committed to chronology, is he not? Uh, Everything that's ever happened, happened at a certain time, which is God's way of saying that it really happened. God has provided a backbone, a great foundation under history, namely chronology. Years and months and days that God takes very, very seriously, like the resurrection of his own son, who died for our sins and rose again the third day. Among other things, that proves he really did rise. And I say thank you, Lord, for history based on chronology, which is the frame of reference for theology. And so uh, another thing that God wants us to know about, of course, is geography. Uh, Everything that happened at a certain time happened also at a certain place. And so as we move through the book of Acts, we've seen Some amazing things, have we not, about the uh, movements of God's servants from place to place, as well as from time to time. So, God willing, this morning, we're going to be looking at a movement of the Apostle Paul and his team, uh, starting, uh, of course, as always, uh, in this part of the book of Acts, from Antioch. And the topic for this hour is from Antioch to what? To Antioch. Two different cities. There were there are a number of different Antiochs named after Antiochus, of course, one of the Seleucid kings, a, a whole dynasty of them in the previous centuries, and uh, how God wants us to know something about geography, places, everything that ever happened in history, according to the Bible, not only happened at a certain time but a certain place. And we say, well, thank you, Lord, but this gets confusing to me. Keep track of who did what, when, and where. But may the Lord help us to at least get the general impression, which is not widely understood today, even among people who claim to be Christians, that the Bible is absolutely accurate in every detail. And thank the Lord for the human author instrument of writing the book of Acts, whose name was Luke, one of the most confirmed, recognized, appreciated historians of the ancient world. Everything Luke ever said in the two books he wrote, Luke and Acts, that has ever been possibly confirmed historically has been confirmed. Intricate details of history and geography. Well, you would not be surprised if Luke, as a matter of fact, 
was guided by the Holy Spirit in what he wrote. The Holy Spirit doesn't make mistakes. And we say, well, thank you, Lord, for this constant reminder of the beauty and the perfection of your word. Okay? Now, last year we ended our series in the book of Acts with chapter 12. We saw some amazing things, didn't we? Namely, that the 12 apostles by the end of chapter 12 is reduced to how many? 11. Never to be replaced was James, the brother of John. What an awful blow that must have been to John to lose his brother James. The sons of thunder, they were called. And you remember what their mother said to Jesus one day? <laughs> uh, sir, in a very reverent, worshipful attitude, we're sure, although profoundly ignorant of the significance of what she was asking on behalf of her sons, when the kingdom comes, may my two sons sit on your right hand and on your left. How would you like that? I mean, she, would you agree she admired her sons? She loved her boys. She wanted the greatest for them. And Jesus said, well, you really don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and have the baptism with which I'll be baptized? And of course, the boys shouted back, oh, yes. Yes. They said, well, you will. You will. But who's to sit at my right hand and left hand is for the Father to determine. Thank you. So indeed, James now tasted the cup, didn't he? beheaded. He was baptized with a baptism, of course, of physical martyrdom in chapter 12 of Acts. And, uh, of course, we know that when uh, Judas defected as one of the twelve, he was replaced by whom? Matthias. But when James died, he was replaced by whom? No one. So from year to year, the twelve became fewer and fewer. But don't panic. When the kingdom comes, especially the eternal state, I should say, lo and behold, there'll be twelve gates named after the twelve apostles of Jesus. They'll all be there. And uh, I'm sorry, the twelve foundations, the twelve gates will be after the twelve tribes of Israel. The twelve foundations of the city will be the twelve apostles representing the church, as Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us. Uh they are the foundations of the church because to them was it committed what? The witness, the testimony, the confirmation, and the even in some cases the writing down, like Peter and John did, of things that tell us about the Lord Jesus. So those are fascinating things to think about, isn't it? The origin, nature, function, and destiny of the Twelve. And amazingly, even though James was the first to be martyred, Apparently, John, his brother, was the last one to be martyred and lived long enough to see, of course, the end of the entire first century and to be able to write not only his gospel and his three letters, but under Christ, the book of Revelation. Now, I say, well, Lord, I'm just fascinated with how all this fits together in your plan and your purpose for the inauguration of the church. But by the time you get to the end of chapter 12 of Acts, friends, you see some things now prepare, being prepared by God for an enormous outreach to the Gentile world, which brings the gospel all the way to uh, Connecticut, Middletown, 
Let's uh, look at the end of chapter 12, just by way of introduction, please. Are you there? Acts 12. The wicked king, who, of course, had tried to murder Peter, who was miraculously rescued. It wasn't yet time for Peter to die. Jesus, in fact, has said, you're going to be an old man when you die, sir. So apparently he wasn't afraid of dying now. He knew he couldn't. Interesting possibility there. But uh, the king, that wicked King Herod, died because of his uh, blasphemous assumption of deity. And he said to himself in verse 22, it's the voice of a god. They said it's the voice of a god and not of a man. And momentarily the king thought, you might be right. I'm a god. Famous last thought. He dropped dead. Awful fate. But look at verse 24. But the word of God grew and multiplied. I wonder if that is not an intentional contrast. This mighty Herod died, but God's word didn't. And isn't that true today, friends? In the last century, more Christians have died for their faith than all previous centuries combined. And it looks like at times the church is being destroyed in many parts of the world. But lo and behold, God's word multiplies. Not in spite of, but oftentimes because of the persecution that God's servants endure. But the word of God grew and multiplied. And here's how it begins to happen on a global scale. Verse 25. And Barnabas, dear Barnabas, godly spirit-filled, man of love and graciousness, and Saul, of course you know who Saul is, who was converted on the Damascus Road by Jesus and is now being prepared, called, equipped to be the greatest of all the apostles, even though he said, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle, and as a technically he wasn't. But watch how this is developed in the book of Acts. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, having brought a gift down because of the famine in the previous chapter 11, when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now remember from chapter 12, verse 12, it was in the home of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, that the prayer meeting was going on as they prayed fervently and effectually for the deliverance of Peter. And when he was delivered, they said what? It can't be Peter. I wonder if God is uh, displaying a slight sense of humor here about how feeble is our faith. When we pray, do we really act in the light of what we know he can do? And I say, well, thank you, Lord, for that godly home, at least, where people knew how to pray and to whom to pray, and God answered their prayer in a spectacular, miraculous way. And in that home was a young man named John, the son of Mary, that particular hostess, a wealthy woman, apparently, and a godly woman. And uh, John felt called of God to uh, join with Barnabas and Saul as they went back from Jerusalem now to Antioch. It's a long trip, several hundred miles, because Antioch is now the place where believers are first called what? Christians. And Antioch becomes the, uh, the sending point for the gospel throughout this entire part of the world over here and over to here 
And over to here, and you see we're finally getting to Connecticut, are we? Up here. Do you, you see uh, Middletown, Connecticut? This is how it started. Praise the Lord. Chapter 13, verse 1. The Acts, really, can we say it, of the Apostle Paul. Just like the first 12 chapters are really the Acts of the Apostle Peter, if you want a very simplistic division of the book of Acts into two parts. Now, there were the church. Notice things in God's Word always in the New Testament, in the, in the uh, post-Pentecost period, are focused on the local church, not on some denominational headquarters somewhere. Yes, in the church there was in Antioch certain prophets and teachers— and it names Barnabas, of course, who was the most prominent one. He was the official representative, of, was he not, of the church of Jerusalem, as we saw back in chapter 11, to sort of supervise and watch over and teach these dear believers, many of whom were Gentiles by now. And uh, others are named Simeon and Lucius and Menaean, and, of course, last but not least, Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said to them, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. Now, whether that came by an audible voice, we don't know. Uh, but uh, today is not the Holy Spirit doing the same thing. Whenever anyone goes forth with uh, the precious things of God, the Word of God, someday I'm sure the Lord will show us the, the infinite uh, centrality of the work of the third person of the triune Godhead, whose work is oft overlooked and neglected, underestimated, and uh, there is a tendency, of course, which is understandable, to think so exclusively of what Jesus is doing, which is right, he's the head of the church, the bridegroom of the bride, that we neglect sometimes what the third person does, maybe perhaps in overreaction against the uh, charismatic movement which uh, overemphasizes and distorts, as a matter of fact, the work of the blessed Holy Spirit. But nevertheless, he is the one who represents Jesus in his physical absence from the world. He's the comforter, the encourager, whom Jesus said he would send. He's the one who, under Christ, created the church, and he's supervising it, and will continue to do so until he takes us, as we've said, at the rapture, which could be today. Praise God. Now, the Holy Spirit said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, why did they fast? Because it set aside all the tremendous encumbrances and distractions of meal preparation, meal serving, cleaning up after meals. And if you don't know what that's involved, look what happens this week in this church. Don't you think we could study the Bible more if we eliminated all meals? <laughs> there wasn't anything magical, friends, about fasting. That's been sometimes uh, overdone, uh, as if we gain some special merit with God by what meals we don't eat. No, it was to put a focus on, an emphasis on, and remove distractions from what? From concentrated, effectual, fervent prayer. I have to watch myself, you have to watch yourselves. It is so easy to be distracted and the last thing we end up making time to do is to pray to God, the Father, in the name of his Son, through the Holy Spirit. But this was the launching of the global mission outreach of the true church of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
All right? Now, they, that is the church, sent them away. Okay? Verse 4, So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at uh, Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John to be their minister. In other words, John Mark now, who is going to someday write what book? Mark. It really amazes me, friends, how, how humble Mark is in describing himself in his own gospel. I mean, John, for example, never mentions himself. And uh, Mark says this about it. Here's the only record we have of Mark uh, in his gospel about what he did. When uh, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and Judas Iscariot led a group to capture him, Jesus uh, confronted them, and it says, they all, all the apostles, the disciples, forsook him and fled. Footnote. Now this is Mark. And there followed him a certain young man, having a linen cloth cast about his naked body, and the young men laid hold on him, on Mark. And he left the linen cloth and fled away from the naked. Goodbye, John. See you later. He really didn't have very many outstanding credentials, did he, to be qualified to write a gospel of the New Testament. But we're going to see some things, friends, about him that are sad and yet encouraging. Encouraging for all of us, for young men who fail in a ministry to some extent or other, and yet can be reclaimed for the glory of God. That was Mark. In fact, think of the Apostle Peter himself. How many will kindly agree that he sometimes failed? In fact, you have to look more than once to find when he succeeded. <laughs> when he ever said anything that was intelligent, God-honoring, and biblical. Out of his mouth came strange things at times. And yet God prepared him, equipped him for marvelously effective ministry of the Word. So the point is this, friends, don't give up on each other too soon. God does not. Well, Mark was with them. Interesting, it doesn't mention him as being one that they sent forth, but he tags along, as it were. And uh, they are now where? They have now come down from Antioch, which is a city of 800,000 people, the third greatest city of the Roman Empire, next to Rome and Alexandria. Alexandria, Egypt, probably had over one million Jews, by the way. Antioch maybe had 70 or 80,000 Jews, but they went down to the coast city of Seleucia and then moved down to this island of Cyprus and moved from Salamis on the east coast to Paphos on the west coast. And uh, whose home country was that island? Barnabas. That's where he was born and raised, and he knew that land like the palm of his hand. So it was very appropriate at this stage of their ministry for Barnabas sort of to be the leader as they went through that country, called that island called uh, Cyprus. And when they had gone through the isle, verse 6, under Paphos, that's on the west coast, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, how sad, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, which is Aramaic for what? Son of Jesus, his father, had that name, which was apparently not an unusual name in that day. And of course, ever since the Lord Jesus came, Christians normally don't call their 
children Jesus, but in that day it was a relatively common name for a Jew. So he was the son of Jesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a, a prudent man, a man of integrity as an administrator under the Roman Empire. And I might say this by way of a footnote, friends, that oftentimes, in fact, the majority of times in the book of Acts, Luke speaks highly of Roman officials. The biggest problem Paul had was not Roman officials, but Jews, fellow Jews. So sad, so tragic. Now, this man was a prudent man, and he called Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. Now, that was a rare opportunity, was it not, to speak to a leading official of the Roman Empire in that island. Now, when Paul was converted on the Damascus Road, you remember, he was told, you will appear before kings and rulers, and you will suffer great things for my sake. Well, here's the appearing before a ruler without the suffering. He's moving victoriously, friends, through this island in his first step of missionary endeavor, is he not? Now watch what happens to this man, Bar-Jesus. Sort of like Simon Magus, you remember, back in chapter 8 of Acts. Verse 8, Elymas the sorcerer, that's his other name, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Friends, that is a very ominous statement, is it not? You're almost ready to hear in the next statement, so God smote him. You know what's amazing in the New Testament? People who fight against God, who oppose God's servants, who hate the gospel, that God tolerates year after year after year. God, friends, I'd like to make this announcement, may I, is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all might come to repentance. If God dealt instantly with every sin, where would we be? Gone. Wouldn't be anybody here. Not even in the church. As remember from Acts chapter 5, uh, two believers who dropped dead because they lied to the Holy Spirit, but they were believers. They made a, they had a false thought about God and died. And I say, Lord, we're here just because of your mercy. That's all. Your mercy. Someday I'm sure God will show us that, won't he? Dear child, if I had dealt with you as you deserve to be dealt with, you would have departed long, long, long before you did. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Well, friends, here we are. Verse 9. Saul, who is also called Paul, now here's the beginning, you see, of uh, his taking over the leadership of this team. Just a little hint here of what's coming. It wasn't Barnabas that talks to him. See, get the point? It's Saul now who does the talking. Saul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him. Now, in other words, it's the Holy Ghost that this man is blaspheming and withstanding, not Saul or Barnabas. So Saul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, Oh, full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil. You're not Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus. You're Bar-Devil, Bar-Demon. Just like Jesus said to the leading Jews of, his, of Jerusalem, that you are of your father the what? The devil. Okay. Thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? 
and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, stopped there. You say, wait a minute. I didn't think people could be saved by seeing miracles. You're right. That's a very dangerous thought. In fact, Jesus said to Doubting Thomas, Blessed are those who have what? Not seen and yet have believed. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, not by seeing a sign miracle. And the Pharisees and the scribes always asked Jesus, Show us a sign. Show us a sign. He said, This is an evil, adulterous generation that seeks after signs, and you won't have one except the sign of Jonah. Now, friends, this is a very difficult issue, is it not? How does sign miracles fit into early church history? The beginning, the foundations of the church. And that's a very complex issue. We'll have to pause the sermon there until next week. But we do so with the confidence that God's Word is true from the beginning to the end. And Whitcomb Ministries' purpose in creating this radio and internet broadcast ministry is to bolster your faith by offering timeless truths for changing times. We'd love to get your feedback regarding today's teaching at facebook.com slash Ministries. Then, join us for much more next week as we continue in Volume 5 of this ongoing series, Acts Witness of the Early Church. I'm Wayne Shepherd, praying that the Lord will use this encounter with God's truth in the heart and mind of each listener today.